The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Happy Friday, everyone, and welcome to Squawk Box. Here are your headlines today. AI optimism pushes the Nasdaq to its first record close in over two years, while the Dow and S&P 500 marked their best start to the year since 2019. U.S. consumer prices increased at their slowest rate in nearly three years, keeping expectations for a June rate cut on the table. Our U.S. colleagues will hear from two top Fed policymakers later today. Uh, from bad to worse, shares of New York Community Bank Corp plummet 20% in extended trade as the regional lender removes its CEO after acknowledging material weaknesses in internal controls. Elsewhere, the Chinese manufacturing activity has uh, slides, or slides again for a fifth straight month, raising uh, the prospect of broader policy moves ahead of next week's annual legislative meetings. And it may have been a good month for European equities, but the earnings picture paints a different story. We'll break down the beats as well as the misses plus one trend nearly a third of blue chip heavyweights are doing. A record territory across on markets, the Nasdaq in particular climbing to fresh thresholds and you can see through 16,000 points as it achieved a new peak, nine tenths higher. What we've seen on markets, the rally very much concentrated around the AI story again. Just three names, uh, Datatrek giving us this line that three names have been behind half of the S&P 500's rally so far year to date. The likes of NVIDIA, Meta and Eli Lilly accounting for those gains. You can see the S&P 500 also trading at a fresh record. In terms of yesterday, Microsoft showing that leadership for the major markets. The Dow pulling high by about a tenth of a percent. What do we have in the backdrop? We had the monetary policy ideas that have just been percolating. When is the time frame for that first rate cut? The PCE out yesterday, investors looking at the number, it was still somewhat warm, but investors saying, look, the Fed speakers out and recent weeks have accounted for that. And perhaps we are still on course for a June rate cut. In terms of Treasury markets, as a result of some of that commentary, four and a quarter percent at the long end, 4.62 at the short end on the two year. To the dollar, the trade we're seeing at this point, a lot of different monetary policy decisions being debated here and over in Japan too. There's been some mixed commentary this week on just what the direction will look like for the Japanese yen and for monetary policy. You've had one of the board members over the Bank of Japan saying that sustained achievement of 2% inflation was already in sight. But some pushback to that from the BOJ Governor Ueda with a more cautious tone. So dollar yen rates this morning were up about a third of a percent on that trade. Sterling euro also finding some traction morning session. To the Asian markets, uh, we are seeing some fresh records again across on the Japanese stock market, climbing to a fresh high for the Friday session. 1.9% up also for stocks in Australia. We've got a record there as well. The other major markets uh, to China, slightly weaker start this morning, as you can see, just one or two points to the upside versus these strong gains we're seeing elsewhere. Isn't Steve. that amazing, Karen? Just, just, just let's take one step back of what you were... By the way, good morning to you. Lovely to see you. Uh, of what we were just saying there. The Japanese have got negative 0.1 interest rates. 
have stalwartly, throughout everything that has happened over the last two years with central banks raising over the year, have not raised one jot. And yet the Americans are stuck at 5.38, the midpoint of their range, because inflation remains robust. What's happened to the, the, the coordination globally on these economies? So you've got the Chinese who, quite frankly, I don't see any evidence that they're still growing at 5%, but I keep getting told they're growing at 5%. You've got the Japanese who are uh, the stock markets through the roof, and yet they are still stuck at negative 0.1. And you've got the Americans stuck at 5.38. What has happened to the world, the coordination around the world? I don't think you have coordination at this point, do you? I don't think you do. But the diversification of monetary policy was expected to come through this year. What you may see in terms of closer yields, that may not necessarily be a story of the Bank of Japan raising. It might be a story of cutting by other central banks over the yeah. course of this year. Yeah. Well, who knows? <laughs> I, I, that, um, we've had robust debates about exactly. that. I, I still don't know. I've got a man who's coming up who might know, actually. Yeah, let's have a look. Right, in the US initial jobless claims rose uh, to 215,000 last week. That was ahead of expectations as investors await next week's all-important jobs report. Continuing claims were also ahead of expectations at 1.91 million, the highest level since November. This is where the action was, though. The Fed's preferred PCE inflation gauge showed headline and core inflation growing at their slowest pace since early 2021 on an annualized basis. The figures were in line with expectations with the headline figure at 2.4% on the year and 0.3% on the month. Traders now pricing in a near 65% of the chances of the Fed delivering a rate cut in June. They keep going back, don't they? According to LSEG data. That's how we say it these days. LSEG, not the London Stock Exchange. Uh, right, we have heard from a slew of policymakers this week with four more speaking out. Yesterday, the Atlanta Fed President Rafael Bostic reiterated his view that uh, rates are likely uh, to see cuts in the summer. Cleveland Fed President Loretta Mesta said the FOMC's December projection of three cuts this year, quote, feels about right, is what she said. Uh, New York Fed President John Williams said cuts remain likely later this year, whilst the Chicago Fed's Austin Goolsby expressed optimism that inflation could be dampened by further supply side factors. But one thing we haven't mentioned, George Ligarius, chief economist at Mazars, lovely to see you today, sir. One thing we haven't mentioned is the super core figure in the PCE. We're going into the weeds here, a bit wonk-like if you don't mind as well. That was really too uncomfortable for those looking for cuts, isn't it, sir? Good morning. Uh, yes. Look, uh, generally speaking, though, if you look at the month-on-month number, that was a what a 0.4 percent. And yes, it was high. It was the the highest in the year. But um, the uh, in in January, it's always high. You know, you have to take into account the the seasonality here. What I'm looking at. Uh, and, you know, it, it's not so much generally the PC. The, the element the whole market is looking at right now is services inflation. Okay. And services inflation is persistently high. Uh, the other one, the other number I looked at from yesterday's release was the personal income. This rose by 1%. That was the highest since September 2021. Okay, and this was due to government spending uh, and more resilient wages, which suggests that consumers are going to be uh, resilient. And you have a very decent savings rate. So, you know, retail numbers could 
could rebound significantly. And that's why the Fed is still cautious. You know, by by all accounts, we have inflation falling. And yet, uh, as you previously mentioned, we have an interest rate at five and a half percent and we're still cautious. And this is the reason. Okay, there is decent growth out there. Um, I'll just add one more factor into that, and I, and, I, and I couldn't agree with you more about that personal income figure. It really flashed red or green or whatever to me. I don't know which colour we're going on. Personal income dividends also provide a boost, jumping $76 billion as well. Those who own the stock market as well are, are actually reaping the benefits of returned remun- uh, increased remuneration as well. Americans just don't feel poor at the moment in the main. I appreciate there are some tensions at the periphery, but by and large, they're getting more income, they're getting more dividend, they're keeping their jobs. This isn't the ingredients for rate cuts, George. Definitely not the ingredients for a recession, and one could argue even not the ingredients for a for a very soft landing. You know, um, re- growth is resilient. Okay, it should slow down from here, uh, mostly due to capital expenditure. Uh, wholesale inventories had risen too much lately, so you know it, it needs time now for retail inventories to to catch up. But definitely not the ingredients for a massive slowdown. Is it the ingredients for uh, rate cuts? Yes, because it it's still a forward-looking policy. Um, a lot of Fed officials have stated that rates are still restrictive. Okay, uh, so when they cut near the end of the year, as it, as it appears, um, they're not aiming for you know early 2025. They're aiming for late 2025. That's the economy they're trying to to gauge. George, if you look at the market pricing now on a rate cut for June, it's at 76% prob- probability we start to see the rate cuts in that month. Do you think that's right market pricing for a June cut? Okay, first of all, thank God market pricing has, has come back to, to Earth versus December when they were pricing in seven rate cuts starting some, at some point in, in March. Okay, so you know, just for perspective, the, the expectations are now, are, are now back and grounded to, to reality. Having said that, there are two scenarios, and I don't think even the Fed knows what it's going to do right now. The one scenario is that they give us a token rate cut just to keep people happy in, uh, in June and then wait for a couple more until the end of the year. The other one is they start around September uh, or October and they give us two or three rate cuts by, by year end. Um, whether you do a token rate cut or not, it's a way to, um, I wouldn't say manipulate, but I would say a, a way to keep markets happy, a way to, to exert some psychological influence. But in the large scheme of things, going from 5.5 to 5.25 doesn't make a huge difference in mortgages and you know basic economic um, uh, performance. Georgia, let me bring up the Hawks and in particular Waller. We were having a debate yesterday of Waller versus some of the market participants out there from Larry Summers to Livia Blanchard about what we need to see in terms of the labour market. It keeps on coming up as a, a source of heat. What we were seeing this time round, if we have rates that stay higher for longer, and this is the Waller argument, it won't necessarily lead to scarring on the workforce that you'll just see employers slow their hiring. Very different view, much more dovish view coming through from Summers and Blanchard about keeping rates high and what that could do to the unemployment rate. What do you think happens to the labour market from here? Because it feels like we've had a bunch of announcements that there are cutbacks, that large companies are rationalising the workforce. What do you think the playbook looks like for the labour market? 
I wonder sometimes if us economists see the labor market in, in real terms, not in model terms. Okay, because there's demographics to consider. A lot of older people are dropping out of the workforce and they're not necessarily replenished by, um, you know, by younger workers. Uh, so this is tightening up uh, labor conditions altogether and renders past models uh, really useless. And there is also the huge uh, skill gap developing between what the market wants and between uh, what is offered uh, after uh, university. And the AI revolution, which in some places of the world is actually taking part, um, is also, you know, uh, is also creating further imbalances in, in the labor market. To cut a long story short, I would actually be on Waller's side. I think labor markets are tight for reasons that don't necessarily have to do with economic policy. They have to do with the fourth industrial revolution and with demographics and all that. So maybe the Fed does not exert as much influence on the labor market as it thinks. George, lovely to see you today. Thanks uh, for kicking off our show. Uh, interesting debate over when they cut rates, whether they be a token or not. I, I might disagree with you on that one, but uh, anyway, we'll move on. Uh, George Lagardias, thank you, sir. Chief Economist at Mazars. My, I tend to disagree with most people, so it wouldn't be uh, abnormal. Uh, as you had to... It's not just me, apparently. I thought it was just me for years, you but it's not just me. a bit more than anyone apart from my <laughs> wife for the last two decades. Um, bless you both. Uh, we'll hear from two top Fed policymakers on CNBC later today. Don't miss our exclusive interview with the Richmond Fed President Tom Barkin. That's at 2.30 Central European time before the Chicago Fed President Austin Goolsby join us uh, for a first on CNBC interview at 4 p.m. U.S. senators have averted a partial government shutdown after passing a short-term spending bill that will see one part of the government funded until March the 8th, gosh, with another till March 22nd. The legislation now goes to President Biden's desk for signature. He's called on lawmakers to pass a full spending bill, describing this as a short-term Fix. Uh, let's spend a little bit of time on the banks because shares at New York Community Bank Corp plunged over 20% in extended trade after the lender identified material weakness in its internal controls. The regional bank also announced executive chairman Alessandro Danello will immediately take on the roles of CEO and president. Danello was named chair in early February after Moody's downgraded the stock to junk on its exposure to commercial real estate. Arabile. Oh, coming up on the show, the concerns keep piling up then for China's economy with fresh data painting a weak picture ahead of the Communist Party's key annual meeting. We'll have the details next up. Also ahead, it's been a tumultuous week for NATO with Sweden approved to join while two of its key members disagree over Ukraine. We'll have more this hour. And later in the show, Italian defense company Leonardo topping full-year order forecasts. We'll speak to the CEO and former Italian Minister for Ecology Transition. That's an exclusive interview coming up at 8.15 CET. Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music and Google Podcasts.
Um, I'll do this very quickly. Big announcement out of Switzerland. The Swiss National Bank saying Thomas Jordan, the chair, of course, of the SMB, to step down at the end of September this year. I will come back to this later on, I promise. Okay, let's move on. The uh, company we're uh, pushing on to this morning uh, on the back of earnings, Aegon, posted a four-year net loss of 199 million euros, while operating income fell 17% on the year. The Dutch insurer guided for capital generation of up to 1.2 billion euros by 2025. Lard Frisse joins us now, the CEO of Aegon. Lard, thank you very much for joining us. Just talk us through the latest half. The numbers look challenging today. Yeah, uh, good morning, uh, Karen and Steve, and thanks for having me back on the show. Um, today, we are presenting a solid set of results capping a transformational year for our group. Um, the most important lens to evaluate the pro progress of the company's operating capital generation, uh, that is up 14% to uh, 1.3 billion euro, nearly 1.3 billion euro. And uh, why is that important? Because it's a future predictor of the remittance capability of our units, which in turn informs the future uh, uh, of the uh, free cash flow generation. And that's very important for our investors. Now, what you're also seeing is strong commercial momentum that we were able to sustain in many of our markets, especially in the United States. Uh, and our operating result was indeed lower uh, versus the same period last year. And that is due to two things. First of all, half of that is explained by one-offs last year that did not recur this year in the operating result. And secondly, we have taken proactive management actions to improve and stabilize the so important metric of oper operating capital generation. And that in turn has on an IFRS basis a depressing effect on the operating result. But overall, we're, I'm very pleased with the results that we are announcing today. Can you just talk about where you're aiming for? Because you've set out some goals, and in particular around leverage, you're still aiming for around 5 billion euros by 2025 in gross financial leverage, but also the news flow that uh, the company is trying to re-elect you as CEO. So just give us a sense of what lies ahead from here. Well, we have uh, had a Capital Markets Day event last year in London where we gave our plans for our U.S. business specifically, but also have expressed targets for the year 2025. And one of those targets is a leverage reduction to around $5 billion, uh, on the balance sheet. And in fact, we've been able to uh, already accomplish that today in the fourth quarter. Uh, the other uh, targets are operating capital generation to the tune of $1.2 billion, and you have uh, learned today that we're at $1.3 billion for the year 2023. Then our free cash flows, we want to increase to $800 million, and it's now standing at $715 million. Uh, and then, of course, we aim to uh, for a target uh, on 2025 of 40 cents per share on dividends. We are well on our way to meet those targets. Um, in fact, today we have announced to increase our dividend per share uh, with 30 percent versus the previous year to 30 cents per share. And that's also proof testament to the fact that the transformation of Aegon, which we have uh, started uh, on four years ago, is, uh, is, on, uh, is in well on track. Lord, um, you, you've given me part of the answer for my next question about the increased dividend as well. But the increased FCF, again, you've given us a target for 2025. Uh, expect free cash flow around 800 million euros. Obviously, you're looking to keep that figure or grow that figure. What else are you going to do with the free cash flow the next couple of years? Well, the free cash flow came out in 2023 to 715 million, so we're well underway and on the trajectory to uh, obtain that target by the end of 2025 of 800 million. Uh, what we're going to do with those cash flows is a couple of things. You know, the, 
The, the cash flows, of course, are a basis for, uh, for capital returns uh, to stockholders. That's number one. And number two, we aim to transform our business. Uh, so if we uh, see uh, value-creating opportunities that can enhance our, uh, our cash flows moving forward, we will look at those. But the most important thing is that we've launched a very ambitious plan to organically improve the business, and that is our main focus, our primary focus. Um, people keep saying to me there is so much untapped potential in China. A lot of international Western companies have chased that. You guys are, are not huge there at the moment, but, but you are hoping to grow the business. I think it's moving in the opposite direction. What's the problem with China, Lard? Well, in China, we've seen, obviously, the investor sentiment uh, over last year. I mean, yes, China has seen their GDP growth targets of 5%. They've They've achieved that, uh, but investor sentiment uh, in China, of course, has been choppy. We have a, a couple of businesses in China. The, the first business we have in China is actually a very strong joint venture in the asset management uh, arena. Uh, it's doing very well, but last year it has seen outflows because of the uh, investor sentiment in China. If you look at our life insurance uh, company in China, we actually have seen oh, uh, uh, throughout the year a growth in sales of 19%. The second half of the year was more muted than the first half of the year because there were some regulatory changes that we needed to adapt to. But overall, our life company in China is growing and the asset management business over the last years have, have, has shown a very strong progress. Uh, and this year was muted because of the investor sentiment in China. The outlook for China is, of course, now let's wait and see how the uh, economic development in China will continue. Uh, but we are present there for a long time and we will continue our progress with our partners. Like, can I ask you more broadly about asset management? Because it feels as though we've gone peak interest rates now, so we're um, on the cusp of a new cycle on monetary policy. But at the same time, it feels like asset management is becoming even more competitive. So just to flesh out what you're seeing at this stage. Well, our asset manager, obviously, when the rates went up, if you're a fixed income skewed asset management business, you have pressure on your, on your incoming revenues. And we've seen that coming through in the course of 2023. Obviously, we're adapting to that reality, and we're adapting in two ways. The first one is to simplify the investment strategies and focus on those investment strategies that we believe are world-class and that we can grow and expand in. And those are um, alternative fixed income, retirement and fiduciary solutions, responsible invest in, in, uh, investments in general, and real assets. And those strategies, we are expanding. We've also done small acquisitions last year to expand that capability further. And secondly, we're reducing expenses and making the platform more efficient. Now, in terms of flows, what we've seen in 2023 is actually a tale of two halves, if you will. The first half, we saw quite some outflows given the volatility in interest rates. But in the second half of the year, there were hardly outflows uh, that we saw in our global platforms business. We did see, continue to see it, but also more muted in our Chinese asset management business. But in our global platforms business, in the second half of the year, uh, the, the, the outflows actually uh, reduced materially. And overall, we had net inflows. So, in fact, uh, we're seeing it slowly turning now. Lad, thank you very much for the time today. Thanks for joining us. Lad Frise with us, the CEO of Aegon. Manufacturing activity in China contracted for the fifth straight month in February, with the official PMI coming in at 49.1. That was in line with analysts' forecasts. Our colleague Sam fired this report. 
A mixed bag of data out of China today. Official figures showing factory activity shrinking for a fifth month, while an independent survey showing manufacturing picking up in February. The official PMI reading coming in bang in line with expectations, still sitting below the boom or bust line at 49.1, while the Caixin PMI beat forecasts continuing to climb above the 50 mark. What this tells us is the smaller and private firms in China are holding up better than the bigger and state-owned firms. There were still some concerning trends, though. The job market continuing to shrink and deflationary pressures persisting. There were some seasonal factors at play, of course, because of the Lunar New Year holiday when Chinese factories typically shut up shop and workers head home. But that was good news for the services sector PMI, the official non-manufacturing PMI rising to 51.4. That's the best level since September. We'll get a read on the private firms next week. The mixed data, though, continuing to reinforce the need for more stimulus. Attention now shifting to the government meetings in Beijing next week for signals on how the leadership intends to shore up growth. Markets are on the lookout for China's economic targets, as well as ways the government plans to address the so-called D-factors like debt, deflation and the demographic dilemma. In Singapore, I'm Sam Vardas, CBC Business News. The U.S. is launching an investigation into potential national security risks posed by Chinese vehicle imports over worries about connected technology. The White House says the investigation is rooted in concerns about the data that cars collect about drivers and passengers, as well as information on U.S. infrastructure. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market moving news, you can head to cnbc.com or join us again on the show with me, Steve Sedgwick, and Karen Cho, weekdays on CNBC.